Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hello, you're listening to Popcorn Pals, and this episode, I'm joined by Raiders of the Lost Podcast, where we're discussing Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I'm Timmy Fland, movie buff, and this is Popcorn Pals, a popcorn podcast with Lee and Tim spinoff, where I'll be joined by a rotation of movie-loving legend guest hosts to discuss the latest to greatest new big screen releases. It's the same salty fun with some new flavors, and I'm so delighted to have a podcast that I have been obsessed with listening to for some time now. I'm loving what they are doing and their growing success of late. It's so exciting to see. Hello, James and Anthony from Raiders of the Lost podcast. How are we? We're doing great. Thanks so much for having us. This is going to be so fun. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. Thanks for having us. Of course. Um, now, what's in a name? Raiders of the Lost podcast. It was written that I had to have you on for this conversation. Yeah, we were trying to work with Disney to get a screening or something because it's like it's meant to be, but they never got back yeah. to us. But yeah, Indy is the namesake of our podcast. James came up with the idea for the pun with Raiders of the Lost podcast. Yeah, but you were going to say what was the origin, yeah, of the, name. the origin of the name. Yeah, it was the origin of the name. So we were trying to come up with something for a week, like a week and a half, and we wanted it to be punny. We mm-hmm. wanted it to be movie-related. And so we were just spitballing ideas, anything with the word movie, and it was tough to find. And This was back in 2020, like kind of early podcasting days for the general public coming up with show ideas. And then it just hit me one day, 
Raiders of Lost podcast. Punny, it's movie-related. The only problem was people thought we were only a Raiders of Lost podcast or Indiana Jones podcast, I mean. But mm-hmm. it probably mm-hmm. worked in our favor marketing-wise, too, at the same time. So we tumbled on that, and we love it, and it's just been the name ever since. Yeah, we, we I, I love the name, and our fans just should call themselves Raiders fans, which is just so much fun to hear that they create like their own like term for themselves using the slang from the show. But Raiders and Indiana Jones has been a really huge part of our lives growing up as with so many other people around the world. And we love the character and what Lucas and Spielberg crafted with those films. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned how you tried to connect with Disney. And I wonder whether that was a, a naive move because you don't want them to turn around and be like, hey, you're leveraging our IP without permission. <laughs> uh- <laughs> That's a good point. It's good for now. We have some fr- like connections that are connected at Disney in terms of the PR world. And it just didn't work out. We're not. I guess we're not big enough on TikTok. Yeah, yeah, Five hundred thousand doesn't get you a lot on it's not TikTok. Good. It's not good. It's like the poorest rich man. Well, there are there are cats with thirteen million followers. So <laughs> let's put that into perspective. It, it humbles you very quickly when you see that. Oh God, it's a weird world we live in, right? There's cats that have more followers. Uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> now this is a warning right at the top of the episode that James Anthony and I will be going into spoiler territory on Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So if you haven't seen the film, come back and listen once you have. Of course, we'd love to invite you back. Uh, so just hit pause on that bad boy right now. Uh, go watch the movie and come back later. The last thing that we want to do is to spoil your experience with this movie in any way, shape or form. Want to get into that Dominic Toretto cameo? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's fair. We have prefaced that it is a spoiler episode. So there we go. Vin Diesel. Okay, so let's get on with the show. So in the fifth installment of the iconic Indiana Jones franchise, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny sees archaeologist Indiana Jones race against time to retrieve a legendary artifact that can change the course of history. Indy must don his fedora and crack his whip one last time to ensure this ancient and powerful artifact doesn't fall into the wrong hands of the Nazis. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is directed by James Mangold, who has brought us such great films like Logan, Ford vs. Ferrari, Walk the Line, and actually, I had no idea that he directed one of my favourite movies, Girl Interrupted. So when I was like, seeing what James Mangold, getting all the who's who and the zoo stuff, I thought, he directed Girl Interrupted? Wow, okay, so uh, very impressed. It's from a screenplay by Mangold as well, and Jess Butterworth, John Henry Butterworth, and David Coep. And of course, it stars Harrison Ford, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Mads Mikkelsen, Toby Jones, John Reese davies Antonio Banderas, and Boyd Holbrook. Okay, so you've kind of alluded to this already. I wanted to start with your relationship with this franchise because obviously the elephant in the room is the name of your podcast. And so this franchise obviously means a great deal to you as as movie fans, right? So yeah, Indiana Jones, has it always been part of your life growing up? Absolutely. We have four older brothers and obviously Indiana Jones it's always existed in our entire lives and their lives. And so that was always on the TV. Indiana Jones movies were a staple in the house on TV in general. And he was like, a, he was the superhero for us growing up, I would say. Obviously, we had Batman from Tim Burton and everything. We had Superman. But like for us, mm. Indy was our guy until we got into like more superhero characters when they started booming in the 2000s. But Indy, Indy's a really special character for us and just Harrison Ford in general. It's his best role. It's the most charismatic character, most fun to watch the most entertaining and it's it's so nice to go back to see him on screen again even though crystal skull wasn't that long ago but to just go back to the world to see harrison ford 
probably the last time he'll ever do the character because he's he's pretty old. It's apparent in the film, obviously. He's getting up there. <laughs> it's fun to hang out with Indy again. And, I mean, those original trilo- that original trilogy is so special to us and near and dear. And that's why we named it the show. It's, and what, Raiders is in my top ten all-time favorite movies. And I'll, I'll always adore them forever. Yeah. yeah, and they were really pushing the boundaries with uh, filmmaking in terms of action and stunt work with the early films. And we are big fans of things like of – fil- of people like Jackie Chan and Tom Cruise and – and filmmakers that are really set on doing things for real, doing real stunts, and actually mm-hmm. shooting it in the camera on the day of. And Spielberg, and he just basically created that in the early Indiana Jones movies of using practical stunt work, huge sequences, all in camera. Still to this day, some of the most impressive stunts I've ever seen are some of the stunts in Indiana Jones movies. They still blow my mind. I've seen the movies many, many times, and every time I see that guy go in front of the truck's wheel, I'm always like, oh, my God, the guy actually did that. (laughs) I just adore when things are done in camera, and that's why I think they're so special because they still hold up because it was really done for real. It's not like you're looking at old visual effects that can look dated, especially to younger audiences, but Mm. since they use such few visual effects – even young kids, they can watch the older indie movies and be like, wow, this is unbelievable, larger-than-life action. Yeah, I'm always going to be waving the uh, practical effects in camera flag, always. There is nothing that you compare it to. And when filmmakers challenge themselves to to work in that way, it always offers the most incredible visceral experience for an audience you can't replicate that in any way shape or form and the indie franchise really set the agenda of what an adventure film looked like Um, it set the tone for decades and still today there are flavors of uh, the adventure action genre that you can uh, still feel the influence of spielberg's work and harrison ford's work based on raiders and temple of doom and last crusade now what were your expectations going into Dial of Destiny? Because obviously without little old Stevie Spielberg <laughs> behind the camera, I mean, that you've heard of him? Uh, that was a huge element of concern for me, which was slightly somewhat put at ease by the announcement that James Mangold was taking over the realm. So tell me, how did you feel when Dial of Destiny was announced? Who was missing from the equation? and what you were kind of expecting. It's a funny question because you it's he's so synonymous with the franchise. It's not like mm. Star Wars where there have always been different directors making the films. So It's true. For me, I I really like James Mangold and another film that you uh, didn't mention that I enjoy is Copland with De Niro and Stallone that he did. That was an ah. early movie of his. He's a very talented guy mm. and he's made some very good movies recently. Ford vs Ferrari is great, Logan's great. However, I will say mm. that you know, Spielberg is a true genius, and he really is possibly the greatest director in history, just in all of film. I, w- I will say within a few minutes, it was evident that Spielberg didn't make this movie just because the way that uh, Steven Spielberg moves his camera and directs his actors and blocks his scenes and does these incredible long takes, it's really in- insane how that guy's mind works behind the camera, and nobody can compare to yeah. him. And so... It's it's you'll never get what you got with the other movies, but James Mangold was, I think, a very smart choice by Disney and Lucasfilm. He's also made one of my favorite remakes ever with Three Ten to Yuma, especially in the, the Western genre. It's an awesome movie. Yes, and great. Film. You know, since Disney purchased Lucasfilm back in two thousand and nine, 
and then obviously everyone's wondering, will they ever make a new Indiana Jones movie after Crystal Skull? And I personally, I think there's that movie's overhated. Yes, you know, thank Kingdom you. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Sure, there are sequences that are a little bit out, out there, and the CGI isn't phenomenal, but it actually looks better than most of the movies that come out today. Yeah. And it's still a Spielberg movie. We're still yeah. a ton of practical filmmaking, yeah. long takes. Harrison's really climbing all those boxes, and just it's just a Spielberg movie at the end of the day. It's just yeah. overhated because that's aliens. the hype, and that's like people what, freak out about aliens. People love yeah. to people just love to bunch up and like herd, like kind of just hate. We see that in social media a lot. The herd hate. Against the movie, we saw it recently mm-hmm. with the Flash. Yeah. Unnecessary hate for just all kinds of different reasons. But mm-hmm. I think that when I heard that they were making Indy Five, my first thought was, "Is Spielberg making it?" And then finding out he wasn't, I was disappointed because I'm now in the mindset I'm all for these legendary filmmakers making long-awaited sequels to their movies. Like when Ridley got announced to do Gladiator Two, at first I was like, oh, "Do I really want that?" Then I thought about, it, "I'm like, absolutely, I want it. Let's go." Same thing with Prometheus when he did that. And I mean, I think that when the original filmmakers making the movie, it's it's a no brainer. But now that Disney owns Lucasfilm, massive corporation, and just way to to see what they do with it, I was curious, and I was also keeping my expectations at bay. James Mangold's a terrific director, mm-hmm. but you know, I was worried they might keep him a bit much on a creative leash because when I watched the movie, I enjoyed it, but it felt very safe in terms of. The camera movements, the production in terms of what, what what the shots look like, the cinematography, it didn't quite feel like the the kind of adventurous approach with the filmmaking, like the original trilogy plus even Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I guess there was more creative freedom, I would mm-hmm. say, for Spielberg versus Mangle because now we have a massive corporation in charge of the production. However, I still enjoyed going back to hanging out with Indy, so I didn't hate the idea, and I was excited to get back in there. And I still want to see it again before I, you know, if everyone wants us to make our ranking list, it's hard to do that immediately after seeing the movie. But, you know, there's nothing we can do about uh, corporations buying IPs and making new movies. So we just kind of just have to enjoy it and just see what it's like and just have positive and optimism towards seeing the films and the TV shows when they do it. Yeah, I completely agree. Just being open and receptive to an IP being put back on a pedestal and you just hope that they assemble the right team to honor the content but then take it to new and exciting places i'm so glad that you mentioned that you quite enjoy kingdom of the crystal skull because i threw that on recently as well because i wasn't sure if my memory of it was more of an apologist or or whether it was you know it was bad or was good and it was felt so quintessential spielberg it was fun witty indy was having the time of his life and i actually found it quite hilarious that back in 2008 when harrison ford was in his 60s and there's such a conversation in the movie and outside the movie about how old indiana jones was how old harrison ford was he actually looks fucking awesome <laughs> yeah. in that movie climbing up those boxes and stuff and i think dial of the destiny he still is has like, abs he still has abs it's insane <laughs> he still has abs but, shirtless scene in this movie it, it made me feel than, bad yeah <laughs> but he's still it's very apparent now how old he's getting which is i mean he's he's fucking old yes. it is what it is yeah. but he, he's really such a rarity where some people they have like the genetic lottery where they he's just one of those people that <laughs> he's just always been fit he's always just had that lean and mean look about him but also being very um great with um physicality in terms of stunt work he's often done a lot of his stunts obviously not the crazy ones but he's always been heavily involved in the stunt work and in kingdom of crystal skull he was still doing a lot i mean there are behind the scenes 
uh, videos and photos of him still on the wires doing all sorts of crazy stuff. So he was doing a lot in that film yeah. at that age, which is absurd. You think people have the mentality, especially in America, of like that's the age where you stop doing anything and you just <laughs> yeah. you just sit on your couch and watch TV for the, the rest of your life or retirement. But for someone like Harrison Ford, like he's still going at it like a, a young man. He's a very active guy too. He's really in shape. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that shirtless scene in Dial of Destiny, I was just like, like he's no excuses anymore he still he still has the abs what the hell i don't think i've ever seen a 109 year old with abs he will he will he will die with abs he will die with abs he will die with abs he'll be lowered in the ground and we'll count one two three eight eight yeah he's gonna gonna be buried shirtless he's gonna lower himself down into the grave (laughs) lower himself all right i'm done i'm done (laughs) let's talk about the opening of the movie now before we talk about like the actual sequence uh, with the train and the nazis and all the rest of it there was one thing that i immediately missed about how this movie opened and i don't know whether i'm being really picky and pedantic and too much of a fanboy we missed it too the the paramount logo did not morph into the opening shot of the film and i remember talk uh, turning to my mate jacob who i saw the movie with and i was like it didn't morph into anything. I was like instantly put on the back foot. So you missed it as well. I was well. waiting for it. I was expecting them to not do Paramount because it's Disney now. I thought they'd do like a castle dissolve or something mm. and use the the Walt Disney Castle. But uh, then they ended up using the para. Mm. I mean the Lucasfilm rectangle and they dissolved into a lock yeah. or on a door basically, which was fine. But it wasn't that creative mm. and it was so fast that you really couldn't pick up on on it unless you were waiting for it and expecting it like I was and we were. That this put me on the back foot and. Not to say that I didn't enjoy the movie at all, but I was like missing that sort of nostalgic fix straight out of the gate. But I did find it was instantly nostalgic. It was uproarious fun, though, this opening sequence. Quite long, though, because when you compare the opening scenes of the other indie movies, they're quite quick and they they just kind of introduce you to the tone of the film. But this one, we spent a lot of time with a younger indie at the end of World War II it was so crucial in setting up the story. There was a lot of uh, dangling exposition and creating context that would then be later explored for the rest of the film. Yeah, how did how did you find that opening sequence? Did you find it fun and familiar? I thought it was smart to open with uh, young Indy, and it's something people maybe we were all craving of seeing him because so many recent films have mm-hmm. been using de-aging technology. We've been seeing so much deep fake online. And so I found the sequence overall to be uh, pretty enjoyable, uh, pretty well done. Uh, And it's good to have the Nazis back because there's something about Nazis in Indiana Jones where it just makes sense. It's like peanut butter and jelly. He always needs – it's like (laughs) if Indiana Jones has a Nazi to punch, you know it's going to be a good time. (laughs) (laughs) And the the de-aging, it looked really good, uh, I would say, half the time. And I would say the close-ups, it was pretty noticeable, but on the wide shots, it looked very, very good. And I would say that the the close-ups, you could definitely notice it, but I think overall, they did a really great job of capturing uh, the, the feeling of that younger Harrison Ford. And some, sometimes th- there were a few shots where I was like, oh my god. It's, it's young indie. It's, it worked really well a couple of times. I think that you're right, mate, because it, it worked for me for most of the time. And they did a really clever thing from an aesthetic perspective where, and it worked 
for the tone of how they were setting it up. It was set at nighttime. How convenient because Indy's face was kind of cast in shadow and mystery a lot of the time, which I guess helped with the believability of the de-aging technology. He wasn't in full-blown light, uh, but when they did chose to compose shots like that, that's where they put in the real work to make sure it was as flawless as possible. And I felt pretty convinced by that, and I was really surprised at how long it was, how much time we spent with the younger de-aged indie because that was a real task on their hands to get the technology right and deliver a product that was believable for the audience because they held us there for so long. Yeah, and also, I mean, when they pulled the bag off his head, I was like, oh my God, that looks terrific. You know, when he was stagnant face, mm-hmm. really, and not saying too much dialogue, it worked really well. Obviously, you know, it's it's kind of on that line of Uncanny Valley where it looks too real yeah. to not be human almost, sort of. But it worked for me totally fine. Just the one thing with me with the de-aging is the voice. He's noticeably got an old man's voice because he's, he's an old man. So that yeah. was the one thing for me that visually looked great, but the voice, I don't know, maybe they maybe they should have tried with AI. To they like, should have done should've AI. They should have tried AI yeah. to, even though, you know. It would have been better. AI is so many pros and cons right now, but to, to try to recreate his voice with AI, I think it would have worked better to use the, the go with the young Harrison Ford voice. But you, you want the performance from Harrison Ford. Yeah. He's a legend. You want his charisma mm. charisma in there. But also you could tell that there was a lot of stunt actors in there. But it, it was pretty seamless for me when, it, when you could tell it was a younger actor doing some stunts with his face CGI'd on top of it. It looked fine, and, and it was so passable. And we saw it in... Matt in IMAX, so like we saw it like four rows rows back. Ah. We saw it at IMAX's headquarters. It's like a small theater with the biggest screen ever. So we, it's like looking at it with a magnifying glass versus a normal theater with huge seats. And right. I'm sure it looks more realistic in a normal IMAX theater in a normal theater versus what we saw it in because we saw it in like it's the most baller, the yeah. mo- most baller theater ever. Yeah. But you're very close to the screen in the, in the best way possible. Mm. And I think it'll look a lot better in normal theaters, normal size theaters, as well as when it's eventually on TV. I think it will look even better. I I really I agree with you about the voice because that's what threw me off more than the visual of Harrison, the the old gruffy voice of Harrison Ford. I think they should have gone tried to to handle it with an AI program or tried to find mm. an impressionist who can do a great Harrison Ford impression. Oh, they definitely could have. There's I so many that, on TikTok I think, alone. Yeah, <laughs> I think those would have been a better option because for me, if the voice sounded like Harrison sounded in Temple of Doom, I think it would have because audio is just as important as visuals for our for us accepting something that we're um, watching. Totally. So, since mm. the audio threw me off, that took me out of it. And if they got an out an actor who can impersonate Harrison pretty accurately, I think it would have worked a lot better. It did work, but I think it would have been much more seamless if his voice was um, also the right age as well. Yeah, at least what we didn't get was a Irishman sort of experience where you had De, Ni- De Niro like hobbling around. But <laughs> Kicking a guy like, in the street. An old man body with... <laughs> true. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was glad that they didn't get it that wrong i mean the irishman is a couple of years ago the technology has gone exponentially bigger but when you mentioned that the stunt work you could tell that it was subbed out with obviously a, a younger able-bodied person but i think they they m- mainly got it right but yeah you, you you're right about the voice seeing that that kind of takes you out of it and you realize that there's an old man behind that fake face <laughs> so to speak <laughs> kind of takes away the illusion yeah that's right that's right um, there was one thing. Obviously, Archimedes' dial is is introduced into the story straight out of the gate, sets up what the Nazis want to do with it, plants some seeds around that Mads Mikkelsen's character believes that 
can conjure riffs in time. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, folks of all ages, we're talking about time travel in Indiana Jones movie, which we'll we'll get to, um, to see whether how that bad boy landed or did not. But there was something that piqued my interest, and I find this is a problem when they dangle from something really exciting from a story perspective, only to just squash it, and when the blade that drew Christ's blood was introduced in that opening sequence, I was like, that's the story that I want. I want another Holy Grail, the last crusade sort of exactly. vibe. you got Nazis. Let's talk, let's talk about um, religion in the, in the Catholic or Christian faith. Let's, let's get Jesus back on to the ticket here and have some fun from an archeology span perspective. And then that turned out to be a fake and all that sort of stuff. And then we ended up talking about this style of destiny. So yeah, I was disappointed. <laughs> no, honestly, that. I think that's a really good point because of every Indiana Jones movie, this is the only one that doesn't really have any thematic elements that relate to religion, whether it's Christianity or another religion mm. or Judaism. The other films all have intense themes and the relics are all relevant and relate to religions and theology in general and the mysticism. Mm. Of course, this route, it went more into the mathematics realm of belief i guess you could say in statistics yeah. and science to an extent but really it's mathematics which i still found very interesting but for me one of the main core elements of an indiana jones film is its connection to to a religion or to a faith into spirituality mm. and i think that's something i agree that i was a little surprised wasn't really connected at all in the film so i i actually like the time travel element because i'm i i don't mind the aliens in kingdom of christmas skull because mm. we don't know what happened thousands of years ago. There could have been aliens. Who knows? I mean, there's some pretty crazy stuff that's hard to explain out there from the past. So I didn't find it that disbelievable. Also, you're talking about George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. They were going to get aliens in here eventually. So I didn't mind. I didn't mind <laughs> aliens. And um, yeah. it's the last thing yeah. we It's going to happen. It's inevitable. <laughs> it was Agent Smith. Uh, it was inevitable. With this one, <laughs> once you do that, you kind of open yourself up to the realm of science fiction. And I was fine with it. I actually liked mm -hmm. the idea of time travel. And obviously this is a spoiler episode, so I'm just going to mention, you know, the ancient Rome sequence in the third act, which sounds ridiculous. Mm. <laughs> it sounds like I'm making a joke, but <laughs> it really happened. I found that to be really cool and really interesting, but I was disappointed with how short it was. Okay. So my, when I walked out of the theater, I was like, if they're going to commit to going back to ancient Rome, they should have done it within 30 minutes. And then Indy, you could have a Back to the Future-esque movie. Indy, Helena, and the kid, they're in ancient Rome the whole movie for two hours. That sounds, that yes. sounds way more – because you yes. want to do something different. You want to do something exciting. You want to do something that gets people to be like, whoa, I've never seen that in an Indiana Jones movie. I'm going to go see this. I think that would have worked a lot better for the for the uh, entire team if they had just been like, you know what, we're doing this time travel, we're doing ancient Rome, let's just get in there ASAP. I think it was kind of a waste to wait until two hours into the movie, and it was just kind of just like, we're here, and we're leaving. So I found it to be a very cool idea, <laughs> but I think they dropped the ball on it. That's, yeah. And they, all co they could have used their archaeology exactly. and genius intellect yep. of the past and of these ancient it cultures, been a lot of cultures fun. to navigate their way through it and to even participate in the past. I, I agree. I think that would have been really cool. Or even go to different cultures in different time. Like, I know they wanted to keep it a big secret, the time travel, but why? Why not? Why? Why keep it such a big secret? Everyone's like, oh, Dial Destiny, is it time travel? It's the same thing with the Spider-Man. Everyone knew there were three Spider-Man Mystery boxes, We all man. knew that this was going to be a time travel <laughs> movie. 
we had to wait two hours for the time yeah. travel. I was disappointed by that as well. And how short of the time we spent there. Yeah. And also aesthetically, it looked pretty rushed when we were in ancient Rome. Like the CGI at points. And you could tell it was the volume mm-hmm. and the blue screen mm-hmm. was really apparent in those sequences. I don't know how, if they shot that recently or what or did some reshoots. But I was also disappointed mm-hmm. about the lack of time travel when the whole film were leading up to the time travel. But I, I think you're right. If we got there sooner, it would have been awesome. Yeah. Why not, man? Because I think the first hour was significantly better than the second. And that plays into your points because it came down to the pacing of the story. It just got so bogged down in itself that I actually found myself coming in and out of it, which upset me because I really wanted to be invested because I was challenged and excited by what they were presenting and and proposing from a story perspective. And I think the story takes too much of a big swing because you'll, this will divide audiences. You'll either lap it up or you'll wish it never happened. You're like, what do you mean we're 2000 BC? Like, WTF. And I think that definitely comes down to the fact that it takes two hours to get there. Um, and you literally have the most iconic archaeologist of all time getting thrown into a place he doesn't need to dig to see this stuff. He's there. He can physically, tangibly touch it and interact and get involved. And we take him out of that environment as quickly as we put him in there. Missed opportunity. Such a missed opportunity. And I just found that really bizarre and just to labor on this a bit more i i'm I'm going to see this movie again in in a couple of days just because i feel like i missed so much and the story was so convoluted it took so long to get where it where it said it was going to get to the whole time but when the time travel portal opens up i i actually completely missed how the hell they figured out how to get there how that works and I don't know whether I had a um, like a mental micro sleep or something. I did too. I was like, wait, where exactly are they flying into? And I, I felt the same way. I was like yeah. a little overwhelmed with too much exposition. And I also was like, I, mm. I, I was just like at the point where it was like, okay, they're flying to the Aya Storm and it's going to set off the time machine somehow. I was like, I gave up trying to figure it out because just like you, yeah, I was a little overwhelmed with a convoluted structure. And I was like, wait, how exactly did they fly right here? And why Why are they flying right here specifically with the dial? So I, I felt the exact same yeah, way. Yeah, Fuller used the dial to get the coordinates of Nazi Germany's time portal in 1939. But I'm, I'm also confused as to are there multiple time portals set up yeah, all every, over the world every that are going storm, off right, every- at, at, in storms or – was it something to do with mm. with the settings they had on the dial itself? So, and then the continental drift, obviously not taking into account uh, the slight change in movement yep. over thousands of years of the mm. continents, and how that affects the coordinates as well of what Archimedes discovered. So, I think a little more explanation of of the dial of of how the fissures in time work, and exactly for some people what a fissure in time is. And maybe a little less on the character yes. service for the majority of the movie between uh, Indiana and Helena. Mm. Because there are parts of their mm. dialogue and their relationship that I loved. And also parts of their dialogue and relationship that I was kind of just getting turned off with. It They seemed like bickering for like a half hour straight it felt like for me. But other times yeah. it was very emotional and their connection strong to her as a child. And I do like how they connected her love for 
the Dial of Destiny, I mean the Dial itself and her obsession with it to her father as well as her father going insane over it and Indy being a protector over her until he left her and kind of abandoned her in her eyes. So they, I think they did a great job connecting their relationship to the past and bringing it up front in the present. So the things I loved about the relationship, other times I was like a little too much character service versus plot-driven explanation or exposition and also trying to fit, get – get to the time in the past and explain everything that's going on, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, yeah, I agree. I think it fell victim of the same issue. It ha- that The biggest issue I had with Kingdom was the character of Mutt, and it just didn't really quite work for me for that film. And then Helena, in the same way, um, their chemistry wasn't really there. Uh, the jokes didn't really land, mm. and it got to the point where it was just getting a little redu- redundant, and it, I, I was losing interest in them as a team. Yeah. And so I think that there was a problem with that with the Kingdom Crystal Skull as well. I found, if we talk, talk character for a sec, because I did find Helena, you know, pretty badass. She was pretty troublesome, mischievous, all, the, all that sort of thing. And she, just like Indy did, especially in the original trilogy, manages to, you know, worm and manipulate herself out of any and all situations. And I found her fun most of the time, but did she work alongside Indy well? Not effectively. Did she distract from Indy? Was she trying to take too much of the limelight? I don't think it was a uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge issue. I think it was a writing thing. It's like, where's our focus meant to be is it meant to be on helena or is it meant to be on indy who's going to take on those traits it was kind of divide and conquer and give some of the indy traits to helena and and we'll lean into indiana jones harrison can lift up those elements but i think it's always tricky to create and convince the audience of a whole new character and person in indy's life that we've never experienced before especially so late in a franchise five movies in that's meant to be the closing chapter of his story and not to, like, I'm just thinking, like, not to compare it, this to the worst film of last year, which was Halloween Ends. Thank but they you. suffered the same fate where <laughs> they introduced this fucking stupid storyline, this new character that took all the oxygen out of the room that was just utterly bizarre and was just fucking stupid. I hate that movie so much. Evil dies tonight. Evil dies tonight. <laughs> Yeah, but like just like that character, I can't remember his name, I, I don't even care, but he completely took over the story. And I think that they teetered on that same place with Helena. She kind of took too much of the focus away from Indy, and I found that just a really odd choice. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I agree, and I, I love uh, Phoebe. I love Fleabag, and she's a really talented actor and writer. Mm-hmm. And 
I love badass women in film. Like some of our favorite movies are of women in film. Yeah. And I would just say I completely agree. I think that the movie sometimes felt like a Helena in the Dial of Destiny with Indy tagging along. Mm. <laughs> and it doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Yeah, it doesn't have the quite <laughs> same ring. It does I think that Disney, I think it's possible. I mean, they did do a lot of reshoots. I think it's possible they were gearing Helena up to be the successor right. of this franchise. And with test screenings and bad reactions, maybe they reshot the entire second half of this movie, Shit. Um, trying to eliminate what they did do. I think that's a possibility because that's what it seemed like mm. they were setting it up, especially with the first half of the film. I do think that the character of Helena does work, but I do think that mm. in a way they – I think they made her too much like Indy in a lot of ways where the other side characters that have worked well in the Indy franchise – are not like Indy. Yes, that's such a good point. Like, I mean, think just think of Henry Jones Sr. in the first in the, in Last Crusade, amazing companion. Yeah, he's my favorite companion in all the films. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm only saying that because Marion becomes a uh, damsel by the end of the first film. But she's Marion's amazing in the first half of that film. You know. Yes. Um, but uh, Henry Jones Jones Sr. He's not a, a physical brute. He can't do action. He's not a killer, but he's an intellectual, and yes. he's extremely charming. And he and uh, Indy bounce off each other so well. And it's not just because they're father and son; because the char- it's because the characters are so well different, well, so well written, and mm-hmm. they had a lot of differences and a lot of strengths and a lot of weaknesses. Whereas I think that they put pretty much all of Indy's traits onto Helena, as opposed mm-hmm. to giving her something of her own that would contrast really well with Indy. You know what I mean? That's a good point. And also, Marion's great, though, because she's the surrogate who doesn't want to be on this adventure. She's not an adventurer, and that's why yeah. it works so well. She doesn't want to be here. Same thing with Temple of the Doom. Opposites yes. kind of work really well. Yeah, Cade Capshaw. Yeah. yeah, and then, um, yeah. yeah, like you said, with Last Crusade with his father, with Henry Sr., great dynamic between them because they're not exactly alike. Because that, that's what I mean. The bickering was too much because they were just trying to compete, it seemed like, with screen time and dialogue, mm-hmm. kind of. And I think the thing with Disney and... What they clearly do with all these IPs is rather than just making a great film with great characters, they're more focused on it being a trampoline, a bouncing board for these characters to be in a different project. Obviously, their plan was Helena to take over the Indiana Jones TV series. I'm sure this was the plan, which just got canceled a couple months ago probably coinciding with the test screenings that didn't go well in the rumored reshoots that probably happened on this film of the third act. Like I said, the third act, the CGI, you could tell, was not up to par with the first half of the film. Same thing happened with like Multiverse of Madness. You can tell some of the reshoots that were done were clearly a different level of CGI compared to the rest of the film. Yeah. And I think that you know, the focus of making a great film isn't as important to the potential of a verse for a lot of these IPs when a corporate interest takes over their control of them. And I think that that's their goal with the characters is, especially the new ones, is we have to make this a trampoline for them to get into the public eyes of like, this is the new character really that we want you to pursue and follow after this movie ends versus like, let's focus on making a great movie, great characters, great writing and dialogue, which it has elements of all of that, great. but also the focus of just a trampoline always takes me out of it because you can tell that's what they're doing. Yeah, I like the comparison of, He's calling it a trampoline. And I know it's a, it's a cynical way of looking at it, but it's the real way of looking at it. The economy of filmmaking is expensive. It is really tricky to get right. It's a miracle movies get made. It's a miracle that they're successful. But when you have an IP that works, you want to draw 
you know, blood from a stone sometimes. And yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that Disney had that potential plan, but I also just miss the days of having standalone stories that just exist within their own little space and that's okay. Um, but at the same time, I'll still buy a ticket and go see it. I'll go watch it. So I'm part of the, <laughs> Absolutely. I am part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I agree. But I mean, if we say that, we would have never gotten, you know, Temple of Dune and uh, Last Crusade, you know? So true. Yeah, and how lucky we are that we have those films. Yeah, I would say my biggest my biggest problem with the film was the um, the introduction of the present-day indie of, you know, it was like the disnification of all these great characters we once loved just being shells of themselves and yeah there's this trend in hollywood there's this they luke skywalkered him and you've seen it over and over again now there's this trend in hollywood of when you have a famous character from the past when you see them again in these new films they are the worst versions of themselves which i find odd because in this film he, it opens up Indy's sleeping in his underwear on a chair in the living room. He's putting whiskey in his coffee. Yeah. He's a grumpy old man. He hates his job. He hates his coworkers. He doesn't even like the award, he, the gift he gets from his friends. Separating from Marion. Yeah, separating from Marion. I don't understand why um, the studios keep making these characters like dismal versions of themselves. And, and they are in like absolute worst position of their entire lives because mm. all the movies we love that we grew up watching – Indy's indie. He's always indie. You know what I mean? He's never been like that in any of the other movies. Yeah. Now, yeah. I understand that they wanted to write out Shia LaBeouf, so they came up with the plot line of him dying in war. I don't think that yeah. was necessary, but I think they want, They were clearly dead set on making Indy kind of like a bum version of himself. It was really sad. And I find that so odd. I find it odd because every indie movie, the first act of the movies, he's an amazing guy. He's a professor. He's raiding tombs. He's still – he's just being awesome. It's, he's never been like a horribly down on his life alcoholic before, and I found that I found I find it to be a very odd trend in Hollywood nowadays. Yeah, yeah. He had no passion even for archaeology. Oh, teaching. Yeah, I mean teaching. He's just passionless. And the thing, the way I always look at Indy, and the way he's always been presented to us is, and this is why we love him so much, is how much love and passion he has for the things that he has passion about. Yes. And it's infectious. He's like for me, he's like Clint Eastwood. He'd be doing it until he's. You know, 95 years old. And Clint's directing his last movie at 94 years old. He's still got the bug. He's still in, in love guy. with filmmaking and telling stories. Indiana Jones would never lose the love for history, for archaeology, for passing knowledge on. To see him just not care during class. And obviously, mm. it's because the kids aren't interested. It's because he's not interested. I think that's what they're showing with that sequence with the college kids just bored out of their minds because there's old man's droning on about ancient Greece and yada, yada, yada. Who cares? <laughs> He has no enthusiasm left, but I think taking that away from Indy, taking away the passion of his life for history, for the people he loves as well, was just it's just I kind of expected it. You know, when you saw the trailer of him sleeping in his underwear, I fi mm. I figured it was coming. And while you're watching it, you're like, "Look what they did to my boy! They massacred my boy! Look how they massacred my boy!" But it also it takes away from the future and potential legacy because yes. Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade are wildly rewatchable. Wildly yes. rewatchable. I'll put those on every day in a row for a whole year straight, no problem. Temple of Doom is still a great time, but I think it's less rewatchable. It. Same thing same thing with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But those two in particular are, I think, mm -hmm. Indy at his best, most exciting, most entertaining, and 
I will watch them any day, but you know, the rewatch value for a lot of these new IP movies, big IP movies, are just down the drain. And like, do I see myself in two years going to watch Dial of Destiny again, or am I going to put on Raiders of the Lost Ark? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, without question, it's such a good point that you both made about the character of Indy. I felt really uncomfortable when I saw him putting the booze in his coffee. I was like, hold on a minute. This isn't our Indy. Why are they... Not my Indy. Yeah, not my Indy. Why are, why are they presenting him in this way? I kind of understand what they were doing because you could see that they were showing the, the juxtaposition, the comparison between how Raiders opens with his students in college, you know, I love you written on the eyelids and all that sort of stuff. And you compare how they're interacting or not interacting at all with, with him as their lecturer. And so I, I understood that, but he ended up just being old man shakes fist in the sky, you know, with the young people blaring magical mystery tour, the Beatles song um, in a nearby apartment. And I thought, Oh my God, he's just old man screaming at the sky. Like this is really sad to see him that way. I actually quite liked the fact that Mutt was killed out of the story. Of course, I would have liked to have seen his character return for some redemption arc because Shia LaBeouf copped a bit for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I mean, swinging with monkeys on vines will do that to you, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it added some unexpected uh, depth and, and meaning to Indy that I don't think we had seen before. So I did appreciate that layer. Um, and obviously his, his breakdown with his marriage with Marion. I, I know I'm cutting right to the end and there's a few more things to talk for about it. here. Go for it. But just how that interaction with Marion came to be, I mean, we just sat through this two and a half hour movie uh, that didn't quite hit the mark and the pace and the tone of what we were expecting. And then Marion just kind of gets thrown in. And that, just like the time travel piece, just wraps up really quickly. It just bridges this gap between the relationship with Marion and I felt it was a real disservice to her character that she came in and they just connected again. How did you feel about that sort of how they closed that book on their relationship? Expected, but it just felt off. It felt off. I will say, I think that they could have had Mutt alive, but just have him in a different part of the country and sure. not actually visibly seeing him. You could have like a letter from him or mm. a, a see a photo of him on a nightstand. You don't have to have Shia LaBeouf physically there and he doesn't have to be dead. You know what I mean? Mm. I think Kingdom ended, it had a great ending for Indy, the wedding, and then walking out yeah. and grabs his hat. I thought that was a wonderful ending, ending for Indiana Jones, and him and Marion were finally together, and they, he had a family. He finally had a family, mm. and so to take that all away, it rubbed me the wrong way, and then also, mm. you don't have to have them divorced. You don't have to have Mutt dead. Marion can be there in the opening act, and then she could like maybe hop in halfway through. She doesn't have to be there the whole time, but I think you could have had her in the movie more more presently especially in the opening they could have had like a normal it could have been like indiana jones he's still an awesome professor maybe he's about to retire maybe he's like there's one last object he wants to get or something but he's married to marion still they have a home maybe she's trying to get him to retire um you can still have all those things elements there and still make a great movie he doesn't have to he doesn't have to have lost everything that he yeah. just gained. You know what I mean? It's kind of So mean. the fact that he lost everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they yeah. took everything away from Indy. Yeah. And it felt it felt like it was done recently. That ending felt so abrupt, like I mentioned. It right? was like so quick. It felt mm. like it was like maybe something that got changed in the last six months that they did reshoots for. Because mm -hmm. uh, like the reason why they canceled that show was obviously the test screenings weren't going well. And all the rumors of reshoots, were they changing the ending? It felt so 
abrupt and small of a, of a role that it was, felt like it was done recently because I would have loved to see Marion Moore. I would have loved to see her. Karen in the Allen's movie. so charming. She's it's just yeah, she's, she's part best. of the franchise. She's just as important to any other as any other character as Saul. I mean, she's mm-hmm. one of the best parts of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I love Marion so much, and obviously seeing her in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is awesome too. I would have loved to see her earlier if she was actually supposed to be at the ending at the original script idea for this movie and story. So that I felt I felt like it was done last minute and it just they like you said they took everything away from Indy. They even took away his possibility of staying in ancient Rome, which fuck it, who cares about time? Maybe he's meant to be there. They just they took that from him. Like, come on, man. He didn't make that choice. If it's his last movie, just let him fucking stay in Rome. <laughs> let him put a toga on. He wants that life. Who cares? He, he speaks spe- Latin. Speaks he's Latin. Fine. He's good. He'll blend right in. He's That's why it would have worked because he speaks Latin and he's an expert on history. He would have been able to blend in. He could speak a dozen languages. <laughs> it highlights the problem that they spent so long uh, getting us there. And in, it actually felt cruel that... You know, Helena wasn't letting Indy. No, no, you come back now because you'll fuck everything up. It's like you naughty old man. Why do you want this for yourself? But it's like you could have. He could. You could have given it to him if you'd if you'd got there within the first hour, not after two. Yeah, exactly. He could have had his fix. He, he could have felt his his cup was full. But it actually just made it even sadder that they just pulled him out of this really exciting environment. Punch right in the face. Punch right in the face. We're, we're talking about things that were taken away from India. I I just want to talk quickly about the things that they threw at this movie. And I know you guys have talked about this on a recent episode of your podcast, the budget for this movie. So it's apparently has a budget of US $294 million. So let's call it a, let's call it a $300 million movie. That is insane. That's just what they tell us. Yeah, exactly. And that doesn't include the marketing budget and all that sort of stuff. So this movie has a task on its hands to uh, balance the balance the sheet for Disney and Lucasfilm. But I feel like that budget and the way this movie looks from a scale perspective, it loses its gritty down-to-earth fun archaeological adventure that you get from the original trilogy especially, and in some part Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I, I think the budget was far outside the franchise look and feel that we're used to. So, yeah, what, what did you think about how much they threw at this movie from a budget perspective? I mean, the budget for this movie, when you include marketing, is easily $400 million. Yeah, and that's just no what doubt. they're telling us. It's a, you know, it had $150 million marketing budget, so 450 so, so the thing with this film, does it justify spending that much money on an Indiana Jones movie when the previous movies were not made for even close to that adjusted for inflation? Still all really successful films adjusted for inflation, too. Now... A lot of people might not understand that even though the budget's about $400, $450 million, this movie needs to make about $900 million for the studio, Disney, and Lucasfilm to break even. Not make Mm. a profit, to break even. Because people always forget that movie theaters, they don't play movies out of the goodness out of their heart. They get a cut (laughs) of ticket sales. So almost on average, it's around 40% they're getting of those ticket sales, 40 to 50%. Mm. So this movie needs to make $900 million. Now... Does, is Disney betting that much money on Indiana Jones worth it when you could have done this for $75 million, gritty, Great. get some cool locations in the real world? Because three cool sets, that's all you need. Even when we were raiding the tombs in this movie, which are my, some of my favorite parts of the movie. I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark, every time we're in somewhere ancient, or even in the church in Venice, 
it's just magic. It looks incredible. It's visual. Yeah. It's all real. It's all there. It's just great lighting. I love lighting. that bookshelf. The great, fake bookshelf. Yeah, <laughs> great lighting. Great cinematography. Even when he's got the the staff. Incredible visual effects, and most of it's practical. But then you know, whenever we're in a tomb, I was always just excited. They were a bit of a letdown for me because every time we went mm-hmm. in somewhere where it was an, a, a tomb or whatever, it was very dark yep. and it was not very creative. I, I was missing the color yes. and the brightness that even though even the snake tomb for a time when the when the torches are lit and they they bring them down with all the snakes after Marion and, and Indy are forced to go down there, even that room is massive and gorgeous and, and still yeah. bright enough to like see everything. But everything was was so dark in this movie. And I was missing the light because obviously a lot of this was – there's a surprising amount of CGI in this film and visual effects. Huge amount. Obviously, Crystal Skull has plenty as well. Crystal Skull also has plenty of practical filmmaking elements, way more than this film. Mm. So I was always – I just felt myself being disappointed by the ancient relics and the ancient tombs. And They did feel small, didn't they? They, they felt small and compact and – they just didn't feel magical like they always did in the past. You know, when we're pulling out a giant casket and there's fire shining on yes. the walls of gold and reflecting everywhere, and it's like gold light everywhere. It looks incredible. You know, to an extent it was there, but overall I was disappointed by the lack of magic when we were in these ancient mystical locations. Yeah, uh, and on top of that, I was I was um, very surprised about the amount of CGI and green screens used because I know Kingdom used so much of it, and I was not a fan of the CGI of Kingdom, but it does still have a lot of practical stunt work. Yeah. But I was surprised because in the, and even and even that film, there's some still some great stunts. But I was surprised with this film because. There are some cool stunts, but the stunts would basically be like be one shot of like a car crashing into something or mm. something happening. Um, whereas in the previous films, the stunts were like twenty minute sequences of stunts. You know what I mean? It's like you're watching the show at Disney World. That's what the movie is. You yeah. know what I mean? It's just an endless stunt sequence, all practical. But this film was just like a lot of CGI mm-hmm. sequences, mm-hmm. all animated, w- peppered with a couple of like a shot of a stunt. Just one shot of something happening. And for me, I was, for being such a fan of the franchise because of its practicality, I was really surprised how how much Mangold and company leaned into the CGI and most notably, not just CGI, but green screen backgrounds. And I thought, I found it to be pretty noticeable on the train sequence, even though it was pretty dark. Mm. Because, and also, and I, I found it to be extremely noticeable during that cart chase. And yeah. Tangier, yeah. Every shot of them inside the cart was just like close up, <laughs> blue screen background, and oftentimes it wasn't um, blended together very well. What takes me out of that is obviously being animated, but then also when things are actually happening for real, light reflects on the actors in all different colors, shades, shadows, whatever. You're especially going through alleyways and, and buildings and all these different traversing different neighborhoods, especially in the Tangier chase. Mm. The, the light pouring on actors' faces should constantly be changing and looking different. It should, it should always be evolving. And with this, you just get this beautiful soft studio lighting on their faces, the entire chase sequence. Yeah. And so every time – the entire chase sequence, I'm like, I'm like, there's nothing happening on these actors' faces. They're in a studio. This is just a nice big softbox in front of them. If they're really filming it for real, it looks real. You know what I mean? That's why – it takes you out of the illusion of it. So I found that the reliance by Mangle to really just be like, you know what, let's just do the easy way. Mm. 
especially for him being a big fan of the franchise and already especially Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah, so Ford, much yeah, practical Ford filmmaking. Versus, yeah, Ford versus Ferrari. I was, was expecting great. like almost that level here. I wonder if Disney with the Marvel machine, they've just gone to the point where it's everything's factory filmmaking. Everything is like we're shooting it on our studio lots and locations that we've built. Mm-hmm. They are already equipped with huge blue screens. That's where you're filming this movie. I wonder if Disney had had a huge pull in that direction for Mangle to just have to commit to CGI. Look, I think you've absolutely nailed that whole conversation around that. There, there was a recent quote that Julie Louis-Dreyfus mentioned about her involvement in, was it the Black Panther? And they were on that bridge um, and she came, sweep, yes, sweeped Wakanda in. Wakanda Forever. Yeah, Wakanda Forever, that's right. And she was saying like, oh, like I didn't even know where that was set. Yada, we were just in an Atlantic car park surrounded by blue screen and it was cool to see where 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 i ended up showing up in that scene and and i think you i think you i think you definitely um, it looks terrible it looks fucking awful you can't trick audiences with that sort of stuff like our our perception of light and how that interacts with with our skin and everything like you may not be like oh that's lit weird but you come away feeling different about an experience about it, how a scene plays out. Um, and when you don't put actors in that real tangible environment, it's so noticeable. I mean, archaeology is tangible. It's sand underneath the fingernails. That's what Indiana Jones is. And you didn't get that. And I found it really bizarre that James Mangold just dialed up this whole CGI thing because it worked against it. And um, you mentioned Dominic Toretto at the beginning of the episode. and <laughs> Like Fast and Furious. Yeah, I was like, that street buggy car chase scene, I was like... Yeah, like Jason Momoa is going to show up here at some point and and absolutely fuck <laughs> shit up. I thought this. I'm watching Fast and Furious, thirty seven right now. Like it was just, yeah. it was just disappointing. I, I think they, yeah, they gave uh, Helena a little Dom Toretto power. She like <laughs> when she ripped the metal pole off the cart, like she ripped the pole off and then jumped into the other car and bashed through the window with that pole. I was like, wait, did she just rip a metal beam off of a frame of a car? <laughs> Well, it's funny that you bring up Fast X because I said, you know, I, I didn't think a movie could make Rome look ugly, and Fast X absolutely did make oh, Rome look terrible because awful. it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and holy crap. Now, when we were going to ancient Rome, I during the movie, I was like, okay, this I'm finally excited about during this movie. I'm like, this is going to be cool. I love ancient Rome, and I'm like a little buff about it, and so I was really ecstatic to go there, and obviously I, I know the rumors of ancient Rome being this movie because there are supposedly set photos, set photos of yeah. people in ancient Roman out- outfits in, in uh, warrior attire and centurions. And obviously they teased it with the, the centurion ship that they just uh, went down, they dived down to get the, the dial from, mm, mm. the other the other piece from. And when we got into ancient Rome, just going back to what we were talking about earlier, I was so disappointed how quickly we were there because I thought that was the most interesting part of the film is to see this battle of Syracuse, the yes. siege of Syracuse, it was so fascinating. We haven't really seen anything on that scale in ancient Rome in a big movie like this since probably Gladiator. Of course, there are Centurion, the movie itself, and other mm. movies like that have been made of ancient Rome. But, I mean, on the scale of a movie that everyone's going to see, mm. you know, I, I wish we spent more time there. And, it, and honestly, I was disappointed by the aesthetic because we just ended up being on that hill for the most of that sequence of just on this hilltop in the backgrounds, the battle going on. Like I said, they should have just dropped them right in there and interacting with the Romans. And obviously you don't want to mess with time because there's a lot of complications there. But I, in terms of the CGI, I was really disappointed by the aesthetic of 
Syracuse in this battle in the mm-hmm. background that was going on during this dialogue. Oh, dear. It didn't look great. It, it, it looked kind of like Quantumania, like that level of, of CGI. You know what? They could have they put, and to my point of making this whole movie set in ancient Rome with Indy, they could have done it and shown it in the trailer while still keeping it a secret. Yeah, I agree. They could have implied that ancient Rome footage would be like a prologue to the film. Yeah, flashback of some kind. Setting up the dial. Audiences would have walked into the film thinking, okay, there's going to be an ancient Rome prologue teaching us about this instrument. Mm. They could have kept the twist while showing ancient Rome footage in the trailer and marketing. So I think that they they overthink the mystery box thing too much. Mm. And they could have, like, if I was going to make this movie, I would have been like, okay, we definitely need a cool action sequence in the first act because then we can throw a lot of that in the trailer. And so you could keep Indy being in Ancient Rome a secret, and then it's like a fun twist for audiences to be like, oh, shit, the whole movie's in Ancient Rome. So they could have committed to it, and they could have shown Roman footage in the in the movie trailers and marketing without spoiling this big twist. You know or what I mean? Just do it and be like, it's Indiana Jones in Ancient Rome. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah, Find or, out yeah, how he gets or that. There. Yeah. <laughs> Look, that is like that is how this movie needed to come together. Like you've just said it there and then. Just a simple simple tweak into the order of things, uh, the 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 hierarchy of the story, and it would have been much more exciting and interesting, and ultimately unexpected, because uh, you're feeding. A bit of a oh look the other way you don't oh we're not going to come back here it's just like the prologue stuff we're setting up exposition but then you throw them in this is making me like really wish that that version of the movie existed (laughs) but anyway alas here we are i do want to talk about something that i think was done so well in this film and I'm, i'm really confident that you'll agree name something better than a john williams score i don't know man (laughs) it's so wonderful he is the master of creating themes for characters and and emotions and when it's just used to perfection here i think all those iconic sounds that we've been familiar with for over 40 years are used in really effective ways and i think that without john williams behind that podium it would have been a really sad loss to the experience of indiana jones and i'm really glad he was there to kind of close the chapter on indy for us it's really incredible and he's the best ever it's but it's really incredible how he can still create so much new masterful music for ips and franchises he's been doing since the 70s i mean star wars the force awakens trilogy some of the music in that i think is is the best he's ever seen absolutely phenomenal he's still the top of his game and then to see him retire, but then he's like, you know what? I'm gonna do. I'm gonna say yes to Steven Spielberg. I mean, uh, to Indiana Jones one more time. And he said he'll probably work with Steven again one more time. Mm. It's just well, incredible. he actually said he confirmed he's gonna play. He's gonna write until he dies. Now. All right, that's amazing because yeah. it's just incredible to see that he can still do it. Out, not just at his age, but of the same characters and everything, and still make something new and just stay in that world mm. and just write write something completely beautiful. It makes me. So disappointed that he didn't do any of the Harry Potters after Prisoner of Azkaban. Because can you fucking imagine the music he would have made for the rest oh of that franchise? Oh, my God, man. That and would have been incredible. And, I mean, <sighs> it's just – he's just a legend. And I think it probably was the best part of the movie for me as well. Is just not the, – the music itself, like – I'm just gonna. Li- I, was, I was listening to it earlier today. It's just absolutely phenomenal. Helena's theme is terrific. The cello and the vi- the violin. It felt very much reminiscent to me of like Schindler's List. It felt a lot like. Mm. So it was really beautiful what he came up with for Helena's themes, as well as you know going back to Indy and just do- getting another shot, putting putting his own whip on and hat and doing <laughs> his thing. It's just what a who the 
what a genius this guy is. It's it's very comparable to what I mentioned about how Mangold taking over for Spielberg and really noticing the difference in the style of directing. Yeah. And it's like you have the greatest ever, and then you have someone who's very good and and very 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 capable. You could the same thing happens with John Williams in Harry Potter is a great reference because when other composers stepped in, yeah, they did a good job, but it's not John Williams. And even Alexander Desplat, he's one of the great contemporary composers. Mm. He did a wonderful job with the last two Harry Potter films, but still, I'm sometimes I'm, I'll listen to that. I'll be like, I wonder what John would have done. <laughs> and then you look at the other Star Wars movies. You look at Solo, um, which was done by Thomas Newman did that? Or yeah, but John, John did the theme. John did the theme, but then the rest of the movie, it's like it's not yeah. quite right. You know what I mean? And I mean, and I think it was John Powell, maybe. So whoever did it, they're they're still very good. And so if you had this movie, and if someone else would have been hired, and even like the the Jurassic World movies, Giacchino is one of the best doing it right now. But still, mm. he has to heavily rely on the themes that John made. Hundred percent. Jurassic Park. You know what I mean? So he's mm. still hitting hitting those, and the themes he came up with for the new movies. Giacchino, they're good, but it's not like John Williams' Jurassic Park themes. You know what I mean? So. If they had got another composer, I'm sure they did, would have done a very good job, but it would not have been the same. It's just the same thing as Spielberg didn't direct it. It doesn't feel the same. And if if J-Dubs didn't do the music, it wouldn't have felt the same. James Mangold had a lot of pressure. I, we, I think we can appreciate that, what the task that he put his hand up for. And I'm just glad that for his experience that John Williams, even though Spielberg wasn't involved, that J.W decided to come on and support the film um, because it would have ultimately been a lot even harder for James Mangold to prove what he was trying to achieve here. I think we have a shirt idea. What would, what would John do? What would JW do uh, when it comes to J dubs do? What would J dubs do? Gentlemen, is there anything else about the story that's on the tip of your tongue? You're dying to bring up or talk about maybe a character that we haven't discussed that you want to reference? Yes, yes. There's, there's one thing. There's yeah, one thing. Please. Antonio Banderas, who I love. I love Antonio Banderas. Yeah. A wonderful, wonderful legend. He walks into this movie, <laughs> says two lines, and then he's gone. He gets shot. I was oh, no. like, what? I was so disappointed. Like, I wanted he, him to be. There's nothing a... about him in the movie. He was he was advertised as a main character for me, even on the poster. Yeah. I, was, I was waiting for Antonio, and he finally showed up. I'm like, here we go, Antonio. It was really a small role that I was really disappointed in because I was expecting more for, for mm. what they would have written for him. Yeah, I mean, what a waste. It's kind of a bit of a bum steer when you cast a notable actor. And, of course, in casting, you want the right sort of flavor for a character, and that can come from anyone. But it ended up actually being quite distracting because he walked out as quickly as he walked in. And I thought... <laughs> yeah. He didn't need to be in this movie whatsoever. They could have just hired a nobody. They could have just hired a Greek actor that we've never heard of before, and it would have served the same Spanish purpose. Actor. Yeah. Or, yeah, but they were in Greece. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. I was taken aback. When he got shot, I was like, wait, is Antonio Banderas, he has two lines in this movie, and he's gone? He's, he's gone. What is happening here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like, like they and it was weird because they introduced him, and, like, they say hi, and I was like, awesome, we're going to get a great Antonio Banderas scene and the next scene is Helena doing the card trick. And I was like, is Antonio Banderas going to do anything in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was disappointed by by the role size for him. Yeah. yeah. And, and just quickly, I think the character of Teddy, played by Ethan Isidore, was a completely unnecessary character because you kind of had two sidekicks competing against each other. You had Helena as Indy's sidekick, 
that was taking up a lot of oxygen in the room from how they kind of wrote her character into the story. But then you had, yeah, short round version two in Helena's sidekick. And it made me miss Kehu Kwan. I mean, I don't think it would have worked if he showed up in the movie at all. I'm not saying that I wanted that to happen. Uh, yeah, he was um, a, a waste of space, I think, from the story. It was just another layer to this that didn't need to be there. It didn't offer anything for the story. Even though you said that Helena was Indy's sidekick and then also then he was her sidekick, mm. Indy was the sidekick in this movie, and they mm. even say it. Uh, Teddy's talking to Helena, and this is when they're in Naples, right? Mm. Sicily. In, in Sicily. And he's like, aren't you in charge? She's like, she says twice, I'm in charge. I think that the story in the film is telling us that Indy is the sidekick in this movie and Helena is the lead. I think that's what they were doing. Yeah. I, I think they wrote the character of Teddy into trying to get young people interested in the film to have mm. a young kid there. Mm. It did work with Short Round. And because Kate Capshaw wasn't really involved, like she wasn't like rivaling Indy. So I think Kate Capshaw worked as like having two companions in Temple of Dune better. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think they wrote Teddy in the film just for kids. And I will say, getting back to Dominic Toretto, the the legend, it did feel sometimes a little Fast and Furious-y with like such ridiculous things happening, whether it be Teddy flying a plane. Oh, fuck yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> Literally taking a plane off. And then uh, the Helena motorcycle what? jump, was, it, it, just, it was just took me out of it to see the, these like improbable things happening. And I was like, did they not notice them following on a motorcycle for across Italy at nighttime? <laughs> Improbable things happen in indie movies all the time. Yeah. We always make fun of Mutt, I mean, Mutt with the bamboo yeah, yeah. swinging. Like, yeah. that's the most ridiculous yeah. thing ever. <laughs> and I hate that scene. And then also Teddy swimming without ever swimming before. I mean, if you've never swim before, you 100% are going to drown you're dead. You're underwater. You I are dead. And, like, you can't, you can't just verbally teach someone how to swim. That's not how it works. But um, <laughs> <laughs> something that really took me out of this movie from it being an Indiana film, in addition, sorry, we keep, I guess this is just like Destroy It, Dial Destiny <laughs> episode. Um, the murdering of innocent people, Point yes. Blake murdering innocent people with a gun. It was happened, violent. What, 12 times in this movie. Yeah, I, it was. I understand you want to show how hard and evil the, the Nazis are, mm. but that is not Indiana Jones stuff. So to see to people get up. murdered. I was so taken. I'm like, are they really doing Especially this? Especially at the college. I, I was shocked. Mm. I was shocked multiple times just straight up murdering people with, with handguns. People get hit with – I mean, Indy kills a guy with a handgun in the first film, obviously. But to do it to so many innocent people, the mm. people, the, the, the secretary at the school, and yeah. I'm like, this is this is a bit much for me. I, I For me, and I watch violent movies for sure. I love John Wick. I love Kung <laughs> Fu. Give me it all. But – in an Indiana Jones movie to just start shooting people in the head in the face and mm. killing people like that point blank range that took me out of this experience for sure when I was watching I'm like that is not that does not happen in the Indiana Jones movies maybe once here and there but mm. Had to have been yeah seven the Fisher times. boat crew the yeah, seven the whole times crew. probably yeah. at least yeah when we actually Antonio saw yeah. our guy our guy Antonio got shot right in the yeah. chest bro. Yeah, to watch. I'm so glad you bring that up because, yeah, it was really unexpectedly violent and it worked against just an, another thing of this story, just worked against the tone of what, what Indiana Jones is as a franchise. And, yeah, it was, it was quite confronting at times. I don't think it was particularly necessary. I know they're trying to show the high stakes and, the and you know, anything to get the result with the baddies. Like, I get it, but it, was the, it wasn't the right film to, to showcase that. 
I think. Agreed. Yeah, I think ultimately it was still fun to see Harrison Ford back. And my God, when he ju- he he dismounted on that horse in the <laughs> yeah. subway, like I was like, how is he eighty? How is how is an eighty year old doing it so easily? Like he dismounted, I was like, oh my god, what? I couldn't, I, you couldn't pay me to do that. Uh, it was, so it was still fun to see Harrison back. Mm. It was still fun to hear the music, and there were some cool moments. I, there were some cool things, and I I liked Maz Mikkelsen. I think he's a, a wonderful actor. Mm. But ultimately, at the end of the day, this movie was just completely lacking in the fun factor, and it was mm. just not escapist, and it was not. Uh, entertaining it was not adventurous and it was kind of like got i was getting bored here and there and that's i mean i was getting taken out of it and so mm-hmm. when you when you realize you're sitting in a movie theater watching a movie that's not a good sign for being an audience member you want to be transported and escape into this world and usually with indie movies no matter how many times i put them on i'm just i'm you know i'm gonna put one on tonight now that we're talking about it but yeah sure there, it's just so much there's so much fun and they're so entertaining, and this movie just was lacking in those departments. I, I guess now, unless there's anything else you want to talk about, we'll share our sort of like summation, our wrap up, and and maybe that rating out of five popcorn kernels if you're in a position and feel like you're ready to do that. Well, since I just did a wrap up, yeah, I'll yeah. do my do, let me do rating. my rating. I'll yeah. do my rating first. So out of five, yeah, out of five, I give this. Sad to say it, but you know, we are very honest with our conversations about film i give this a three out of five okay popcorn kernels. Yeah. F- yeah. five kernels three co- three kernels out of five nice and now my turn you know <laughs> like anthony said it's, it's so great to see harrison as indy again one of our all-time favorite characters even though they they took everything away from my man <laughs> still great to see it i still i still enjoyed going to the movie and the, the theater and seeing this mm. film but ultimately, even though it's fun, adventurous, really cool sequences and scenes and lots of awesome action, it doesn't have the magic. It, mm. I mean, when you watch Raiders, you watch Last Crusade, even Temple, even Kingdom of Crystal Skull, just watch the sequences that bring the, the mythos of spirituality and the universe and the cosmos, whether it's the trials at the end of The Last Crusade, the sand on the invisible bridge, or, yeah. or it's... Raiders of the Lost Ark when we're, you know, we're in Venice smashing the floor of this library and we find pieces of a puzzle and then the staff sequence of the sun shining the light beam on the location. It's it's magic. It makes your hair stand, gives you goosebumps. Every Indiana Jones, Jones movie has given me goosebumps except for maybe Crystal Skull, not quite. Mm. But the other three, Raiders and Last Crusade for sure, they, they have real magic to them. This movie, it doesn't have Indiana Jones magic. It doesn't It doesn't have it for me. But at the end of the day, it's still a fun ride. For me, I'm going to give it three kernels out of five. All right. Three popcorns. On the same page there, I couldn't agree more. This is my summation. This is my take on it. So Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, it does its best to pay homage to the iconic 40-year-old franchise and succeeds in part, but ultimately falls flat and somehow becomes too big for its ambitious boots. The big sweeping set pieces and its insistent use of CGI paired with countless Dominic Toretto-inspired car chases and action sequences blur into one. Its big swing in time travel will either excite you or completely lose you and leave you wondering if they should have ended the series with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull after all, which now seems rather grounded in comparison. (laughs) The The film becomes too much of a spectacle, and that's a weird thing to say, but it lacks the grittiness and 
tangible fun of what Spielberg brought to the series. And gentlemen, we're on the same page because I also will rate Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny three popcorn kernels, which kind of hurts to say, but I mean, it's it's it actually does. it's it does. it's still a, a pretty good rating, honestly. But I was yeah. I was hoping that we were going to be walking into at least a four out of five, but it's it's miles away from that. I feel. Yeah, it is what it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. The final words. What can so, you do? What can you do? <laughs> <laughs> Depressing. The surmise. The surmise is everything. <laughs> Go back in time and not make this movie. Maybe that's what you can do. Well, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is in Australian cinemas from June 29, and that's it for another episode of Popcorn Powers. I was joined by James and Anthony from Raiders of the Lost podcast. Gentlemen, where can people? find you on the internet to listen to your fabulous content thank you we are everywhere every podcast streaming platform apple spotify youtube Castbox. just search raiders of lost podcast tiktok raiders of lost podcast instagram raiders of lost podcast letterboxd raiders lost pod twitter raiders lost pod but honestly if you just go to our website raiders of the lost podcast.com we have links for every platform we're pretty easy to find so <laughs> If you can't find us, then I don't, I don't know what to tell you. But we really hope you can check out our content. We do four episodes a week, basically. We do movies we love from the past, as well as relevant movies, movies that newly come out, a mixture of everything. And we're just lovers of cinema, and we love chat and film, and we're so lucky to be able to do it for a living. And we would... We loved joining you, Tim, on this episode, and thank you so much for the invite. Of course, guys. I was so excited when you agreed to come on because I really admire what you do. Gee, you pump stuff out. Like, I I can't believe. <laughs> you never stop. You never stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much. I've had so much fun talking to you both. And as always, thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time. If you enjoy our episodes, head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe. While you're there, we would love you to rate us and leave a review. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Alexa, and where all good podcasts are found. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.